Okay, Jim, I'm sending you the video. Okay. Oh, I watched this video. Face it, you don't find too many socialists in elective office in this country, and one is elected mayor of a size... The other day, I asked Slate's Jim Newell, who writes about politics, to go back in time with me. Good morning, Jane. A couple of facts. Burlington is the largest city in Vermont. This tape we're watching is from 1981, The Today Show. Phil Donahue is about to interview the newly elected mayor of Burlington, Vermont. This is Mayor Bernard Sanders. Mayor Sanders got a lot of attention recently, not only with his 10-vote victory out of about 9,500 votes cast, but mostly because he is a socialist. And everybody reading that article said, my goodness, how did this happen in good old conservative Vermont? How do you respond? Well, in Vermont, being conservative is different perhaps than being conservative elsewhere in the country. I just, I mean, I love watching old Bernie because he's so exactly current Bernie, you know? (laughs) And he speaks in that same purposeful voice, you know? Like, he knows exactly what he believes, and he's going to share it. I won the election, I think, because we effectively put together a coalition of low-income people, elderly people, who in Vermont are very often up against the wall economically, in very bad shape. Uh, The cops supported you, didn't they? The police department supported us, yes. The uh, Patrolman's Association did, right. So you, you had police officers voting for you who probably voted for Ronald Reagan. Well, I'm not so sure that I don't know if I can say but that's that. Certainly. But the police officers in our particular city are earning their trade unionists. Just a little thing. When he talks about unions, he always calls them trade unions, too, which is like, I don't know, it's just a little like remnant of sort of his like lefty upbringing. He goes by the more formal term, and he's, you know, never going to change. Jim just got back from following Bernie Sanders, the presidential candidate, around on the campaign trail. Just a few days in California. This guy, though, this guy who, you know, goes on television and talks proudly about being a socialist and only wants to talk about issues. I guess the question is, like, whether that guy wins a national presidential election. Yeah, it's a pretty big one. It's a question of can he grow beyond the base of support he has already? Or is is that base of support enough in a very candidate heavy field right now? If you take a look around at all the other Democratic presidential candidates, their platforms could have been cribbed straight from Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign materials. His ideas changed the rules of engagement, but his style didn't. He can be distant. He doesn't like to talk about himself. And sometimes he's a little shouty. So it's sort of an open question if that's enough or if he needs to show more dimensions, you know, talk a little bit more about himself, you know, so people can get to know him a little bit better. But he's extremely uncomfortable doing that. On today's show, there is no question that Bernie has changed politics. But politics hasn't really changed Bernie. His campaign is trying to soften him up anyway. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
So how much money has Bernie raised at this point? Like, where is he in the polls and how much money has he raised? So Bernie in the first quarter raised $18.2 million, which was number one in the field. In addition, he transferred over about $14 million that he had sitting around in his Senate account. Um, And they have, I think, $20 million cash on hand, which is far above what anyone else has. That's huge. Yeah, it's huge. And that's just the first quarter, you know. And it's also a very strong fundraising model in that he's not maxing out a lot of his donors. He's not getting a lot of $2,800 contributions from wealthy donors who are then unable to donate again. I think the average donation this time was $20. You know, they have a recurring charge where, you know, every month it takes $20 or something out of your account. So if you have that many small donors, they can keep going at that rate through the election. So it's just very strong and very uh, enduring of a fundraising model. He's the only candidate who has the name recognition and the good base of support combined with the fundraising ability to go on for a while. This is so different than 2014, 2016. I wonder, you, you talked to one of Bernie Sanders' political advisors from back in his first run, Tad Devine. Can you talk a little bit about what he told you about why Bernie wanted to run for president in the first place? Yeah, well, Bernie, you know, they had known each other for about 20 years. Tad Devine had worked on some House and Senate races for Bernie in the past. He's a little bit of a political legend, right? Yeah, I mean, he's one of these sort of old hands. You know, he had been on campaigns since uh, Jimmy Carter versus Ted Kennedy, at least in the primary in 1980. And then he had worked on the Dukakis and the Gore and the Kerry campaigns. So, yeah, he's one of these guys who's been around for a while. And I remember back in 2014, 2015, when Devine signed up with Bernie, uh, it was sort of seen as this this sign that Bernie is serious. You know, they was able to get someone like Tad Devine on, on his payroll. But they met in late 2014. Bernie said he was thinking about running for president. Devine was a little surprised just because he never heard that from Bernie. Uh, and then right before the launch, Devine went with Bernie and his wife Jane to Vermont. And he was trying to just, you know, press Bernie to make sure he really wanted to do this. And he said, Bernie, you're probably not going to win. So why are you doing this short of winning? And Bernie, at least according to Devine, said, well, I'm sick of being a backbencher. And he really wanted to jump into the middle of things. And uh, Devine said, like, okay, I mean, we can do that. But, you you know, we have to have a winning strategy here so that people take us seriously. It'll be a long shot, but we have to have a strategy. And you have to make a case for yourself to people that isn't just, I don't want to be a backbencher. Yeah, exactly. But then he ran this really tight race, like surprisingly tight. How many states did he win? 22? Yeah, he won 22 and he also won the uh, the Americans abroad primary. So he won 23 contests. But we all know how the story of 2016 ended. Despite his surprise success, eventually it became clear that Hillary Clinton was going to win the Democratic primary. What wasn't clear at all was what Bernie should do about that. Bernie wanted to give everyone an opportunity to vote, so he stayed through the California primary, which was the last big primary. It was after that where there was sort of this big disagreement within the campaign. You had Bernie, you know, on one side and some of his most aggressive advisors, and then you had sort of the more consultant type like Tad Devine and his partners who were saying, all right, we've given everyone a chance to vote here. You need to quickly throw your support to Hillary, make clear you're dropping out of the race, you know, don't push anymore because she needs time to build the party back together so she can go against Trump. But it sounds like at that point in the race, Bernie was kind of feeling himself. He's like, this, but I'm, <laughs> but this has been great. Oh, yeah. And like, I have the, all these supporters. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's not unique to Bernie. I think anyone who gets that far and that close and you enjoy being in front of these huge crowds, you're saying, well, you know, do we have to? Can we just push a little bit further? <laughs> People told me that it wasn't selfishness. Believe them, you know, if you want to or don't. <laughs> Bernie's argument was that he can't just credibly throw his support to Hillary right away because his fans hate her so much. He said to Tad Devine, listen, Tad, you don't understand what it's like to be in front of 20,000 people and you mention her name and they start screaming, holy hell. So he felt that a bridge to the Clinton campaign for his supporters needed to be built through the primary process, through getting some of his policies they had campaigned on into the Democratic platform. Tad Devine had seen some campaigns in the past where the squabbling within the party and between the candidates goes right up until the convention. And then it's very hard for the party to unite after that. It was another question with Tad Devine. Tad Devine's firm made a lot of money off of that campaign. Hmm. I think all this money, you know, even though Bernie was happy to have it so he could run a big campaign, I, I, some people said he also thought it was really disgusting that you had this much money going on in politics. Bernie, his, his ideology and what he's campaigning on and just his person is, is sort of disgusted with the political industry. So they just had a disagreement and, and Bernie went his own way and uh, never got back in touch with Tad Devine ahead of this run. OK, so no more Tad. Bernie assembled a new team for 2020 and this time he's the front runner. So what's this new team like? Like, how are they approaching this race differently? The new team is much more diverse. I think it's 40% people of color on the staff. That was something that Bernie really wanted to change from last time when it was a very white, male, heavy leadership team. The three campaign co-chairs are, are people of color. His uh, campaign manager is, is Muslim. They're trying to build out a more uh, professionalized campaign. They didn't have much resources to work with at the beginning of the last one, and then they grew very rapidly. So they were winging it, building out this operation. This time, they're going to have a huge operation from the start. They didn't really have a political department last time to sort of make outreach to new communities. They will have a big one this time. Um, they didn't have a great comms team in place to sort of go out and spin the media and try and get their viewpoint across. There were a lot of stories coming out about how toxic the environment was on the last campaign. Um, there were several complaints about sexual harassment and bullying that went absolutely nowhere because they didn't have a proper HR department and there was no protocol in place. So they tried to actually build a proper HR protocol for this time. So they're playing with the structure around their candidate, but they're also trying to influence Bernie himself, right? Get him to be right. a little different. How are they doing that? Well, they would like him to talk a little bit more about himself. People like to know who they're voting for. They like to know where they come from, their personal backstory, what their values are. So this is something that they would like to try him to do. They would have liked him to do it last time, and he didn't want to. You know, everyone had pretty much the same story. They doesn't like to do this. And they have tried to get him to do this, and he will occasionally do it, but it really is pulling teeth. As one person put it to me, he had to be pile-drived into doing this sort of two-step launch, one where he gave a biographical speech in Brooklyn, where he was born and raised, and another where he talked about um, his time at the University of Chicago fighting for civil rights. And so he did that, and it was very well-received, but then after that, a lot of the personal stuff for, from his speeches disappeared. And it's always a question of whether he's going to be consistent on that or whether he's just going to do what he wants to do. Following his gut, railing about the issues, calling for revolution, or if he's going to keep showing some more dimensions. His campaign staff, I was interested when I read your reporting, 
that it wasn't just about warming up Bernie and sort of getting him to be less strident. It was about bringing in different kinds of voters, um, especially black voters. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so when Bernie was um, in college in, in the 60s, he was a student activist and he you know, led some protests and sit-ins. Um, he got arrested, you know, he got thrown around a little bit. And this is something that his advisors feel, you know, if he talked about it a little bit more, it might help him with some of his weakness with, with black voters. They found this photo of him being arrested in the Chicago Tribune archives. And Bernie was like, I don't want to use that. It would be exploiting. It's not, it doesn't relate to the issues or how I am as a legislator. We shouldn't use that. And as people, as one person put it to me, it took a long time to convince Bernie that this photo was a good thing and that they wanted it out there. I mean, it's also, it's something people love about him that, you know, they view him as super principled. You know, he has this focus on the issues. He believes that personalities don't matter. It's something that people love about him. And this is the central tension with Bernie Sanders. There's a lot of things that even his advisors love about him, that he's stubborn, that he doesn't listen to consultants, that, you know, he doesn't want to sort of just talk about personalities. But that's also a weakness of his. It, it makes him sort of distant. You describe watching him speak at a mosque after the Christchurch shootings and being really struck by what he said. Why? Well, because he did uh, exactly what people have been bugging him to do all the time. And maybe it was just the setting, you know, it was sort of a, um, a somber moment. It was this, this interfaith gathering, the first time a presidential candidate had visited a mosque since the New Zealand shooting. And he just, you know, he said, of, of course, when he talks about himself, he always begins by saying, I don't like talking about myself, but I will do it. Let me do something um, that I have been criticized for not doing as a politician and be a little bit personal. And then he talks about growing up when he was a kid, like reading books about the Holocaust and crying. But the second part of my life that shaped my views uh, was being Jewish, is being Jewish. He's mentioned a couple of times his father's family. His father was an immigrant. His family lost a lot of people in the Holocaust. And he really just connected some of the the difficult things from his past and how when he was young and he really got this uh, burning hatred for injustice, you know, where that came from. It was just something I'd never really seen from him before. His campaign staff wants him to do this to kind of connect with audiences. I wonder what the audience in that mosque thought of this speech. Oh, I mean, it was amazing. It was it was you couldn't hear a pin drop when he was talking and then he was very. Uh, warmly received. And, you know, you always wonder at some of these events, you know, like a a candidate goes to an interfaith healing service or whatever, if it's just a photo op. And, you know, it was in part a photo op. But I actually do feel like the people who came to see that event got some comfort out of it. So was it like a brief glimmer of Bernie the human or was it something that kept going? Yeah, it was a brief glimmer of Bernie the human. <laughs> you know, then he then he gave a rally later that afternoon in L.A. where he, uh, you know, gave his normal stump speech. Huh. Does Bernie Sanders feel different to you this time? No, he doesn't. He really doesn't. Uh, I can see him trying to do things a little differently, trying to give more race speeches or more biographical speeches, at least in the beginning when it's, you know, it's clear he's been pushed into doing it. But I don't think it's going to last. 
Uh, yeah, he seems the same to me as he does, you know, in 2016 or 2006 or, you know, on the Phil Donahue show in 1981 or, you know, whenever you go back looking in the archives. He knows what he wants to do, and he, it's going to be difficult to dislodge him from doing that. All right. Jim, thank you so much for talking to me about your piece. Yeah, thank you. All right, that's the show. You've been listening to What Next. I'm Mary Harris. If you like what you hear, go on over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review. Not just for our own vanity, it helps people find the show, and that means a lot to us. If you've already done it, thanks. Tomorrow on What Next, I'm handing the show over to Slate writer Henry Grabar. He is going to answer this question that I've had for a long time, honestly, which is, where does my trash go when I recycle it? Yeah, stay tuned. All right, talk to you Friday. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.